Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. Oh, you're exactly right, Joe. We work for the man upstairs as you do. You're setting me up quite well. You just gave me an alley-oop. The greatest revolutionary act you can commit right now is to open your mouth and speak the truth. Whether you're an academic or you're a regular guy, we have to be fearless. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach. Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, as always, joined by Joe Resinello. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York City metropolitan area. Please, two things. You know what I'm about to say. Download the app. Share it with your friends. We're an EWTN affiliate. You'll have access to all of our original programming and EWTN programming. And, of course, wherever you see Joe and I on social media, particularly Twitter and Rumble. We're doing very well on Rumble. We want to build up Twitter. We know we're going to get the hammer dropped on us sooner than later on YouTube and Facebook. Um, so we're really trying to build up Twitter and Rumble. So wherever you see Joe and I, though, help us out. Like, subscribe, share, particularly share. These conversations that we have, we're very, Joe and I are very privileged uh, to be able to speak to people like we're speaking to today, who you know, Father Dwight Longenecker, to talk to them about the different ideas, the books that they're writing, uh, what's going on in the culture. So we would encourage you, please, to share these conversations. And as I said today, we're very pleased to be welcoming back a friend of the program, Father Dwight Longenecker, and we're going to be discussing his new book, Out from Sophia Press, The Secret of the Bethlehem Shepherds. Now, remember, we ask you, uh, buy it from the publisher. All right, let's support our Catholic publishers. Also, ask your local parish bookstore to go and order the book from Sophia and stock it up so that your fellow parishioners can have the book. And this is going to be a great conversation. Many of you, if not all of you, know Father Dwight. Having said that, quick bio. Uh, Father Dwight was brought up in an, uh, brought up as an evangelical. He studied at Bob Jones University and later was ordained as an Anglican priest in England after 10 years in the Anglican ministry as a curate, a chaplain at Cambridge, and a country parson. In 1995, Father Longenecker was received into full communion with the Catholic Church. Now, he's published in numerous religious magazines and papers uh, in the UK, in Ireland, in the United States, writing on film, writing on theology, apologetics, biblical commentary, and Catholic culture. Father Dwight Longenecker, welcome back to the front line with Joe and Joe, our friend. I'm always glad to talk to St. Joseph. <laughs> well, we're trying. We're not there yet. We're trying. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Father, and with that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand it over to Joe. Like I said, this is going to be a great conversation. Joe Resinello. Father, could you uh, lead us in prayer before we begin? Heavenly Father, you've promised the Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us into the fullness of truth. We pray that the Holy Spirit might enlighten our minds and enliven our hearts with the power of your love. This we pray through Christ our Lord and Savior. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, Father, i got to be honest. I was looking forward to this conversation, particularly because I love the image of the shepherds. I really do. And what struck that image in my mind, and I pray it when I pray the rosary and I think about it, was the movie. I, this is off the beaten path here, but the nativity. Did you see it? It's a Protestant film. I thought they depicted the shepherds very well in that film. Maybe that's a good place to start. I, you both probably saw the film. I thought they did a great job. Obviously, 
they took some liberties. There was the relationship between Mary and Joseph and this one shepherd. I mean, that's not biblical, but that's okay. It wasn't uh, scandalous, and I actually benefited from that. He was a sincere, and I would call him a man of goodwill in the film. He was deeply moved by the Holy Family and was touched by the Christ child. Comment on that, because I think it's a good film. I haven't seen the film. Is, you should check you, it out. Honestly, it's good, man. It sorry, really, which film are you referring to again? It's called The Nativity. And okay. uh, it's not a Catholic movie, but there was this, and I'll, I'll just, I'll explain it. There was this one shepherd, and basically he says, like, he helps Joseph and Mary. She was cold, and he gave, uh, like, her his coat. And then when the Christ child is born, he comes, and he's in awe. And he says, I mean, it's it's emotional. He was like, I've never had nothing. So she hands him the child and he's like in awe, like is in, in like now he has everything. And I, I really thought it was a great image. I always think of it because these are the people, the real people, you know what I'm saying? And they saw Jesus first and they came to him. Um, yeah. And I think that's amazing, actually. Again, it's not biblical. I like it. You know what I'm saying? And I highly, those out there, check out the film. It's a good film. It's not Catholic. You know, some our Protestant brothers and sisters here have something to tell us. It's a yeah. good movie. It's a good starting point as well, because uh, one of the things I talk about at the beginning of my book, which is called uh, The Secret of the Bethlehem Shepherds, is that the Christmas story is the one story in all of the Gospels which has been elaborated on and sometimes exaggerated, um, used for preaching points, um, used for ex as material for extra dramatization right from the very beginning. It's because it's, a, it's an irresistibly attractive human story. It's just, I mean, you've got everything there. You've got a mother and a father, a baby. Uh, you've got a crisis situation. You've got animals. Uh, you've got homely shepherds. You've got fantastic aristocratic kings. You've got a long journey. You've got all these typical um, ingredients of a really attractive story. So it's been natural over the years, like they did in this movie, to dramatize the, um, the story, to add extra preaching points, to, to elaborate on the characters, and to, and to use it as the basis for a lot of extra drama and a lot of extra um, preaching points and devotional points. And all of that, as you said, is very helpful and very good. But one of the consequences of this over the centuries, of course, is that an awful lot of these extras have come to be considered part of the story. Okay, so like the shepherd you mentioned, or maybe uh, the little drummer boy, or the fourth wise man, or all these extra things. And some of these elements and things that have been added have been highly sort of magical and fantastical and very charming, but not part of the story. So... Mm -hmm. My the, the attempt that I took in the book was not actually to elaborate more on the story, although these things can be devotional and helpful, but to actually go back and say, what can we know about the actual historical consequences, the historical circumstances at the time? Because one of the problems with all, the, all of the um, devotional stuff and the stuff that's added on is that sometimes, especially if they're magical elements, like there was a magical moving star across the desert sands or... Uh, so forth. It, it can be part of a general sort of um, fantasizing aspect of the Christmas story. So in the popular imagination, 
part of Christmas is also I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, Frosty the Snowman, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, a magical elf that comes down your chimney every, every Christmas Eve, and all these other magical elements, so that in the popular imagination, the whole the basis of the Christmas story becomes cluttered up with lots of magical elements. I mean, even in the Gospels, we have singing angels, uh, we have a magical star, we have wise men who are mystical wizards, kind of like Merlin or Gandalf, uh, you know, and these magical elements who are already in the story tend in the popular imagination, therefore, for a lot of people to say, oh yeah, the story about baby Jesus and Mary and Joseph, that's all part of the mystical, magical Christmas myth that we have. And in fact, a lot of modern biblical scholars have also said, yeah, you know, all that beautiful Christmas story stuff, that was made up by the early church to make Jesus more special. Angels singing to the shepherds, a magical star coming to the wise men, that was all made up by the early Christians to make Jesus more special. It didn't really happen. And I wanted to go back and say, well, sorry, actually, although there's lots of magical elements added to the story and dramatized elements added to the story, it is still basically, essentially, a historical event because our gospel is rooted in the history. Let's look at the archaeology. Let's look at the historical record. Let's look at the text that we have to see what we can really find out about the Christmas story and how it really happened. Absolutely. Father Dwight Longenecker is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. Please go out and buy his book from Sophia Press. I'm sure it's available at other places. We'll let Father let us know. Uh, but we want to support our Catholic publishers, The Secret of the Bethlehem Shepherd. So, Father, is that the secret or what it what it what is? Let's lay it, let's lay it out this way. What is the secret of the Bethlehem Shepherds? Now, not getting into too much detail because we want folks to go out and buy the book and go and read it. But what do you mean by the secret of the Bethlehem Shepherds? Well, I wanted to get back and find out why did St. Luke consider the shepherds to be so important that he made them a kind of cornerstone of his retelling of the Christmas story? Why the shepherds? You know, okay, the shepherds were there. And if you go to Bethlehem today, by the way, you still see shepherds wandering around in the, in this, in the, in the fields uh, and wandering around still in, in Bethlehem today. And that's part of the research that I did behind the book. I went to Jerusalem for a two-month sabbatical went to Bethlehem, went to the Hebron Valley, met some present-day shepherds, discussed their life, discussed what it was like and the living conditions then, um, and so actually did the research to find out. And the reason, the secret of the Bethlehem shepherds was to find out why did Luke consider them to be so important. And in the, in the last chapter of the book, I explained that this is because I believe the Bethlehem shepherds were actually um, some of the primary witnesses that St. Luke um referred to to in order to record the story remember saint luke is writing somewhere around probably 40 50 or 60 a.d this is now a good 50 or 60 years after the events so were the shepherds still there it's possible that he spoke to a very old shepherd who actually remembered the events themselves but it's more likely that he was speaking to people in the bethlehem community who were descendants of the shepherds who heard the story second or third hand. Uh, and we know that that's part of the story because it says the shepherds went, in, the, in Luke's gospel he says, the shepherds went and shared with everybody the news that they had heard. Right. Father, let me ask you this. I want to just stay there for one second. I don't want to go off on a tangent, but let our audience know. It's important for people to realize how St. Luke wrote his gospel. In other words, he writes his gospel. If you read it and you read a secular history at the time, all right, 
Luke is doing exactly the same thing. He puts everything in an historical context. He lets you know who the emperor was. He lets you know who the governor was. He lets you know who the consuls were, just like every other historian at the time. Probably, you know, let's say some pagan Roman historian. Is I want you to comment on that because some people say, well, the Gospels are just made up. They're not historically reliable. You read St. Luke. St. Luke Luke was a doctor, correct me if I'm wrong. Okay. And he was great. He, uh, yeah, and he's not going to just... You know, he, he's going to be very uh, methodical in his gospel as a historian, all right, applying the historical standards of the time. Please, a quick comment on that, because I get tired of people saying, well, it's not historically reliable when it reads like any other history of, of in, in, in ancient times. Yeah, St. Luke actually sets up his credentials right at the very beginning. At the beginning of the gospel, he says, I have recorded here what those who have seen and heard have reported to me and who that others have all also written about in other words he's replying on earlier existing written records of the gospel the gospel events we believe the scholars believe this was probably a collection of jesus sayings and stories about jesus which had already been collected within the first few decades after jesus death and resurrection so saint paul saint luke is saying i'm drawing on those already existing written accounts but also speaking with those who have seen and heard these things and how they happened. The early church tradition says that actually St. Luke drew on the memories of the Blessed Virgin Mary herself. That's why in his gospel we have such intimate accounts of Mary's experience through the Annunciation of the, of, 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 uh, the angel Gabriel to her at the Annunciation, her visitation to her cousin Elizabeth, and these very personal stories uh, were given to Luke himself by the Blessed Virgin Mary. We don't have any uh, we don't have any external proof of that, but it's likely that it happened. And if it did not happen just that way, we know that the Blessed Virgin Mary had a close association with the Church of the early Church in Jerusalem, and that the early Church in Jerusalem was actually populated by some of Jesus' extended family, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and some of his half brothers and half sisters, and that therefore these memories of Jesus' birth would have been handed down to St. Luke, if not by the Blessed Virgin Mary herself, by the extended members of Jesus' family. Father, thanks for clarifying that. Thanks for answering my question. Joe Racinello. Father, talk about who a shepherd would be, culturally speaking. And also, I want you to elaborate on the fact that these are people who worked in the fields. They know the fields. They know the terrain. When they saw a star, now— Talk about that, too. Someone like this, who it's not like somebody who, you know, wasn't out there. They see the stars. They know what the sky's all about. How that would be something to them to say, this is out of the ordinary. Clearly, okay. this. Talk I'm going I'm, I'm to correct you here a little bit, Joe, because this is a typical thing which happens. The stories of Matthew about the Jesus birth and the stories of Jesus, of sorry, of Luke about Jesus' birth tend to be conflated in people's minds. Okay. The star that you referred to does not actually occur in Luke's gospel. Oh, interesting. Star, okay. Okay. The star occurs in Matthew's gospel in relation to the wise men. The, there's no star in, Math, in in Luke's gospel. Luke tells us the story of the shepherds. Matthew tells us the story of the wise men. But in the popular imagination, these two come together, and very typically, we see the we think the wise men turned up on Christmas Eve at the manger bed, just next to the shepherds. The shepherds arrived first, and they looked over their shoulders and said, "Hey, who are these guys with camels? Oh, it's the wise men coming too." In fact, 
the two stories are very two separate, two very separate stories. One in Matthew's gospel, one in Luke's gospel. In Luke's gospel, we hear about the shepherds, and they have the news of Jesus' birth revealed to them by the angels, uh, not by a star. The wise men have the truth revealed by the star, not by the angels. So there's, it's true that there are celestial signs to both, but they're different. You know, let's just talk about that because I was actually uh, in my rosary thinking about that uh, this weekend, actually, in front of the Blessed Sacrament. And I, I, I thought to myself, like, how does the shepherd, how does the king, how does Simon and Anna in the, the temple know that it's God? How? Like, what tipped them off? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, like there's something there, like a union almost of, of hearts. How? How would the shepherd? Okay, they're poor people. They're in a manger. A child is born. But he's not any, you know, he's not like every other child. He's God. What made them, like, say, this is a special kid? Okay, one of the contexts is the historical context and the prophetical context. All across the ancient world at this time, they were looking for a Messiah figure. Even the non-Jews were expecting through the prophecies, their own prophecies within paganism, of a great world leader who would arise from the nation of Israel. So the Persians were looking for that, the Romans were looking for that, the Greeks were looking for that. Within the Jewish context, the Jews were also looking for the son of David, the Messiah. So these shepherds are living in the city of David. Their ancestor, David, was the shepherd boy, the shepherd king from Bethlehem, right? And they understood that from the prophecies in Malachi and the prophecies in the Old Testament, that the Messiah would come and he would be the son of David, and therefore it made sense that he would be born in the city of David. And that's precisely the message which the angels give to the shepherds. You shall find this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So... They were expecting and looking for the Messiah figure to be born in the city of David. So it made sense for them to be watching and waiting for this figure to appear. The angels announce his arrival, which make them go into Bethlehem to find the Christ child. Okay. Father Dwight Longenek is joining us at the front line with Joe and Joe. Please go out and buy his book, The Secret of the Bethlehem Shepherds. That's available at Sophia Press. Father, where else can our audience members buy the book uh, if they have to? They can go to my website, DwightLogganecker.com. I would also um, draw their attention to my earlier book five years ago called The Mystery of the Magi. That was the first book I wrote on the Christmas narratives, and The Secret of the Bethlehem Shepherd is kind of a sequel to that book. And we're going to have, be having a special Advent offer on my website to be able to get both books uh, for the Christmas season. Um, it will be available quite soon. Thank you for that, Father. Father, let me ask you this. You, you mentioned Bethlehem. You mentioned David. Is that the central significance of, of Bethlehem, is that it harkens back to, uh, to to King David, or are there other considerations of uh, that we should think about as to why Bethlehem is so significant um, in, the, in, the, in the history of, of, of salvation? Yeah, Bethlehem is the city of David, but also um, Bethlehem has a, an older history going right back to um, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So... Um, Jacob settles, in, after his wandering, settles in the Hebron Valley, um, quite close to Bethlehem, and this area becomes the kind of cradle of, uh, of the Jewish faith and the cradle of the Jewish kingdom. Uh, Beth, uh, King David, of course, is the main uh, pro protagonist who comes from Bethlehem, and it becomes known as the city of David, and therefore the shepherds are looking for this Savior, who is Christ the Lord, 
who will be born in the city of David. And the prophecy is fulfilled when our Lord is born in Bethlehem. Thank you for that, Father. Joe Racinello. Talk about the angels a little bit, because I think when people hear that, you know, we're on the radio, someone's driving in a car, they think back to like the fantasy, like you were noting in the earlier part of the conversation. Angels are real. Gabriel appeared to the Blessed Mother, told her she was going to bear a child. Uh, we believe that. It's Catholic teaching. Um, I'm currently reading a book uh, by Father Chad Rippinger about demons and angels. Angels are real. We believe that. Catholic teaching. Talk about that because I want people to not just think that that's some kooky fantasy like St. Patrick's running around with uh, a yeah. shillelagh and a mug of beer. But also uh, talk about why the angels went to them. I mean, no angels come to me other than my wife, thank God. Uh, but no angel has come to me. But they went to them and said, listen, this kid is special. It's God. Go there. Right. Um, first of all, about angels. Remember, we are coming to this story also loaded up with uh, 2,000 years of Christian tradition, which includes the artistic tradition that we've been given over the years. So as Catholics, we're very likely, when we hear the word angel, to envision some majestic, gigantic figure with beautiful wings who's coming down to speak to the Blessed Virgin Mary at the Annunciation, or Christmas card accounts of the angels with lots of Lots of a crowd of angels with lots of big wings floating around in the sky, and they're beautiful creatures. But of course, a real angelic appearance does not actually come like that. Those people who've had encounters with angels do not say, I saw a big guy with big fancy wings who looked like he was half swan, half man. Okay. Um, in fact, one of the best portrayals of the angels that I have seen was in another film. This is an earlier film called Jesus of Nazareth, which was a television film, which is now about 25 years old, I think. But the Annunciation to Mary is presented as Mary in a room, and the shutters open, and a light blazes in, and a wind blows in through the shutters, and she suddenly is aware of this supernatural presence in the room. She doesn't see a winged guy, a muscular winged guy, step into the room. Okay, She doesn't see... see a little sort of baby with little wings and a bare backside floating in the air. Okay. She has this, she, well, it's portrayed visually as simply the wind, the window blowing open and uh, the light shining in and the wind blowing and her obviously experiencing this inner vision of an angel. So likewise with the shepherds, they, I'm not discounting that they saw a, 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 an army of, of muscular handsome men with with swan wings on their backs okay but this is very unlikely instead they had a supernatural experience which they understood to be an encounter with angels and a message from the angels and they shared that experience because obviously there was more than one of them who had the experience and they knew that's what it was but it was the of the nature of an inner vision an inner um uh locution of what they actually experienced um and so we have to keep this in mind and balance what we hear in the Gospels with what we hear from real-life people who experience angels. What does, it, what does an angelic experience and an encounter actually look like? What does it feel like? It's usually not, uh, like I said, a handsome guy with swan wings on his back. Right, okay. right, and 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 the great thing about that is, and and I we, we growing up and and even now, not every year I try to get to it at Easter, but growing up we watched that movie 
every single year. It's fantastic, by the way. Anybody who wants to see a great, great <clears throat> depiction of the life of Jesus, um, Jesus of Nat directed by Franco Zeffirelli. And like you said, Father, that's an amazing scene. Um, and yeah, I, now that you mention it, all right, you know, it does come to mind because I'm glad Joe asked that question. You never see an angel. You see the room bathed in light. I think it's St. Anne is watching her speak to the light. Like she's speaking to the light, and you hear her say, "How can this be?" As obviously the the narrative goes, um, but that is a fantastic movie. I recommend Jesus of Nazareth to anybody. Um, so um, let me ask you this, Father. We probably have time to to start another question. Um, signs, signs, manger, swaddling clothes. The, these are these signs to the shepherds. I mean, obviously Luke puts them in his gospel. What are what is the significance of the of the manger and the swaddling clothes as signs? Well, you know, I, one of the things that sparked me on my research for this book was this idea that the shepherds were actually um raising the lambs that would be used in the Passover sacrifice in Jerusalem just 6 miles away. And that therefore the, and the way they did this was after the lamb was born, they would wrap them up in strips of cloth and lay them in a feeding trough until the priest could come and examine the lamb to make sure that it was worthy to be used as the Passover lamb. And therefore, when the angel said to the shepherds, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger, and this shall be a sign to you, that the sign was that they were looking at the true lamb of God, the true Passover lamb. Okay, that's a beautiful story, and I love that story. But in fact, in my research, I searched high and low through the libraries of Jerusalem by talking to Jewish scholars, by talking to Hebrew scholars, to talking to scholars of the um, Hebrew scriptures and Hebrew traditions, and talking to shepherds themselves. And I'm sorry to report that actually I did not find any evidence for that story. It seems to be a later edition preaching point where someone very cleverly put together some details and imagined that this was the case. Um, and in fact, the, I didn't find any evidence for it. So therefore, um, it may be one of those elaborations or one of those adornments to the story that has been added by Christian tradition over the years, but which we didn't find any historical evidence for. Instead, the manger, for me, the manger and the swaddling clothes were a sign that this baby was actually just going to be born as one of them. Because what I did discover was that the stable that Jesus was born in was very likely, again, we have this idea from the Middle Ages that this was a, a rough kind of cattle shed, the kind of stable you would have in medieval Europe or a, a, a vacant barn somewhere, okay? But in fact, if you go to the Middle to the, to the Middle East, and if you go to the Bethlehem area, you will see that there's lots and lots of caves in the limestone hills all in that area. And from time immemorial, people have lived in those caves. And in the time of Jesus, uh, the people had, had built uh, lean-to um, structures or simple um, houses, one or two-room houses, in front of the caves. And they lived in the house, but they used the caves for stabling and for storage. So when people say, was Jesus born in a stable or a, a cave, we can say he was born in a cave that was used as a stable. And this was the ordinary home of the people in Bethlehem. The other detail is um, the word in, which is transferred in, in the gospel, was not a typical sort of tavern or saloon, the way we imagine it, with a grumpy innkeeper saying, I'm sorry, there's no room in the inn, but you can go to the stable. Instead, the room which is the word which is translated 
stay uh, in is actually much more likely to be translated guest room, a guest room of the house. So therefore, Joseph and Mary probably go to one of Joseph's relatives. There's no room in the guest room of the house. So they said, go to the back room, which we use as a stable and for storage, and the baby could be born there. It was warm. It was cozy. It It was in a friendly environment. It was not in a drafty, unused barn somewhere on the edge of town. Also, the manger, the archaeologists have told us that there was a sort of half wall between the stable and the main room of the house, and that was that half wall of stone was carved out with a place to put the, the hay for the for the for feeding the animals, which were on the other side in the stable, and that therefore this would have made a very natural manger bed for the baby. So the, the sign to the shepherds was, this baby is being born in one of your ordinary houses, wrapped up in swaddling cloths, just the way you wrap up your babies, laying in a manger, just like you would likely to do with one of your babies. So therefore, he's one of you. He's the shepherd as well. He's the, she- the good shepherd, the shepherd king. Let's leave it there for a second. Father Dwight Longenecker is joining us at the front line with Joe and Joe. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come right back on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York City metropolitan area. The Secret of the Bethlehem Shepherds. That's the book that Father Longenecker has written. It's available at Sophia Press. It's also, Father, correct me if I'm wrong, it's available on your website. Is it? Uh, what's the website address again, please? Longenecker.com. Whitelongenecker.com. Like we said, please support Father on his website. If you can, go to the publisher. um, And most importantly, do something to buy this book. We'll be right back. Catholic Radio works. And now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic Radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith. Families are strengthened parishes and communities flourish so let people know you're listening to veritas tell your friends to tune in and let's make an impact here for jesus and his church this is steve lee for veritas catholic network welcome back everyone to the front line with joe and joe joe pasillo joe resinello we are way in the breach with father dwight longenecker a friend of the show we've interviewed father numerous times you can see our, our prior interviews with father uh, particularly on uh, on YouTube, uh, archived on YouTube. You can just Google Frontline with Joe and Joe, Father Dwight Longenecker. We've had some great conversations with Father. Today's conversation is about his new book, The Secret of the Bethlehem Shepherds, that's available at Sophia Press um, and also DwightLongenecker.com. Joe Resinello, where do you want to go? Father, I, w- I want to elaborate on something you said. He said You said about Jesus being born with regard to his relationship to the shepherds. You said he's one of you. I know both of you pray the rosary, and when you meditate you know, the third mystery, the joyful mysteries, on the fact that God was born in a cave. I mean, all of us have been around the block a little bit. We've met fancy people. We've had dinner, or we've worked with people who are, quote-unquote, on— different levels of society. I've never had dinner with a king, but I've I've met and worked with people who make a lot of money. Um, if you meditate on that for a moment, that God, God was born in a cave and he's one of you, meaning the shepherds were not exactly high on the food chain with regard to society and how a person like that could relate to the magnanimity of the fact that that's God. I mean, it's not like the president of the United States. It's not the king of Spain. It's not, it's God. That should blow your mind. 
actually, if you really like think about that for a moment, talk about that and expand upon that, that God is one of you, a shepherd who is low. He's a lowly person on the food chain in that culture. I think if people really meditate on that, I don't even know if you could wrap your arms around it because nobody does that that's fancy. Nobody. Oh, you might be nice to the delivery guy that brings you pizza to the trading floor, but you're not going to go there for dinner to his house. You're not going to spend Christmas Day at his house in some basement apartment in Queens. No, you're not going to do that. Jesus did. He went into the cave. Talk about that in his relationship, saying to the shepherd without saying it, I'm one of you. Yeah, I'll take it even further. You know, I wrote an article one time which said, which with with the, with the clickbait title was Jesus a caveman. I love it. Okay. In other words, dwelling in caves actually goes back not only to the ancient Middle East. And when you go to, again, when you go to the Middle East today, you will still see some of the Bedouin tr- people with their tents camp, with their tents set up in front of caves. They still live in caves out there. In my research, I came across an article from the Chicago Tribune about uh, the Bethlehem, the uh, shepherds of the Hebron Valley who still live in caves. And uh, some of the simple people out there still do live in caves. When I visited some of the uh, shepherds in the Bethlehem area, I said, do you all still live in caves? They were living in a simple cement block house, but they said, we don't, but we can show you one a place where they did not long ago. We went out across the hills, and there on the side of the hill was a cave, and the shepherds that were there said, not too long ago, there was a house built in front of this cave, and they used the cave, like I said, for stabling, even today. So, and if you go back into human history, some of the earliest humans, of course, uh, the human, uh, some of the earliest evidence we have of human um, habitation and human civilization are the caves, uh, and we know that we talk about the Neanderthals and the Cro-Magnon as being cavemen, but in fact, they did live in caves right back to the earliest days. So we're talking about our Lord coming into a cultural setting and a civilizational setting, which actually has its roots not but just back to the, um, the the shepherds of Bethlehem, but right back to the very very earliest roots of human civilization, of people who lived in these very primitive conditions, living in caves, being shepherds, relying on the flocks for their for their sustenance. And our Lord goes, therefore, to the very root and to the very foundation of our our shared human existence. Father Dwight Long, and I go, let me, just a thought came into my head. I just want to throw it out there to you um, because there seems to be, like, obviously a common theme. Our Lord, Joe mentioned, uh, our Lord comes comes into the world as, as a child in a manger. That's what we're talking about here, obviously, in Bethlehem. Uh, uh, the the shepherds they're they're very lowly people societally speaking, um, but there's this, this this strain of what I see as humility through through the whole thing. Now I'm going to bring it up to to modern times for a second because Joe and I we value what you do and and when you say something we give it weight. I'm not blowing smoke. That's just the way it is. Okay. Um, there's I want to bring it up to we need some of this humility. I think right now in a lot of what's going on in the church, okay? Because I'm on Twitter, I think you're on Twitter, you see a lot of the back and forth that go on and everything else. And I'm not bad-mouthing anybody, I'm not. And I can lack humility quite frequently. All right, so let me be clear about that, okay? However, talk about the need to use what you're talking about, particularly with the shepherds, as an example of the humility maybe we should 
we we should start um showing out there particularly in the public arena because there's there's just a lot of there's there's a lot of tension there's a lot of arguments a lot of this going around and i seem to sense and please correct me if i'm wrong a lack of humility and a lot of what's going on smacks of pride tell me if you agree or if i'm wrong yeah you know um we're just coming out of the last week of what we call ordinary time in the church liturgical year just before advent which in which we celebrate look forward to the coming of the lord at christmas uh, and the final sunday of ordinary time before we go into advent of course is the feast of christ the king and the readings this week at mass were especially um emphasizing the fact that christ the king is christ is the king and also the shepherd the first reading is from ezekiel which is all about um, god saying i will come and be the shepherd of my people and then the gospel reading is the story the parable from matthew's gospel of Jesus saying the king will come and separate the sheep from the goats. In other words, he'll be like a shepherd, but he's also the judge. And you will be judged according to how you treated the least of these. In other words, how you treated the needy. And I began my homily this week talking about Mother Teresa of Calcutta and her ministry to the the poor, the, the, the least and the lowest of the low and the, and, and the, very, the poorest of the poor. And how when she picked up dying people from the gutters of Calcutta, she said, I can see Jesus in them. In other words, all of our uh, entire structure and understanding of our Christian faith is that the higher you are, the more you should be serving uh, the lowest. Indeed, the title of one of the titles of the Pope is the servant of the servants of God. And so in the church, all of us, by virtue of our baptism, are called to be servants and to serve the poor and the needy and to serve Jesus in the poor and the needy. Nobody's exempted from that. We're all called to do that. And in fact, the higher we are, the so-called higher we are in the church, whether we're clergy, religious, bishops, archbishops, and so forth, the, the more we are, it's called, we're called upon to actually serve those uh, who, who are given, put in our charge. Uh, likewise, all of the laity are not exempted. If you're a father, if you're an employer, you have an obligation of service to your wife, to your children, to your employees, to your customers, to those people that you serve. In fact, all in fact, there's a, a give back on all of this because all of the best and the most successful businesses have claimed this as the pattern for their leadership. They train their leaders to be servant leaders, to serve their customers, to serve their employees, to serve the people that they're there so-called in charge of. Uh, and yeah, this is needed in the church, but it's needed right across our society, our families, our schools, our parishes. It's needed everywhere. A reminder that we're there to serve. No, absolutely, Father. And I'm glad you said that. I, I, you know, I kept it with the church. But yeah, you, 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 especially when you look at the spiritual battle that's raging out there, the culture war, it's, it's all pride. I mean, I mean in, in, in fact, one of the one of the biggest movements out there calls itself a pride movement, you know, and which is kind of scary when you when you think about uh, what pride actually means. Um, Joe Racinello. I want to expand on humility a little bit and juxtapose the humility of the shepherd versus the three kings. Now, historically speaking, I don't know what type of kings they were. Um, you talked about that on the other side of the break regarding Matthew's gospel versus Luke, uh, the focus of the two. Um, I have found that humble people um, accept God easier. To the credit of the kings, they accepted him, but they were not shepherds. Humility is truth, because I think a lot of times we look at ourselves and we juxtapose ourselves versus other human beings, societally structured, like I'm a 
you know, an accountant and I live in an upper middle class town and you're a blah and you live here and then we kind of make our own judgments. But ultimately, we should judge ourselves against God. And ultimately, in that judgment, we fall short because no matter who you are, how smart you are, how rich you are, whatever powerful position you have, you fall short. But in humility, we accept God. And I think that's the stumbling block for many people in society that have a refrigerator full of food, that have some status, that are educated. And to the king's credit, they did. But it's easier I have seen and found for people who are a little bit lower because they don't have that security. And frankly, the knee bends a little quicker. Talk about that, because I think that is a stumbling block for especially people in America, because yeah. we have food. We have money in the bank. It might not be tons, but we have a little bit. Uh, a lot of people in the world don't. I think they're quicker to turn to God as opposed to people who have those things and they don't. You know, I commented on the improbability that the, sh the shepherds and the wise men appeared at the manger bed on the same night, on the same night on Christmas, that Christmas Eve, um, on the same at the same time. But to put the two together for a preaching point is actually very important because what we're saying is, here are these humble shepherds, and they were at the lowest, the low end of the society uh, sort of food chain. They were not actually very respected as as, as working class, dirty, grubby farmers. And they are kneeling at the manger bed of the Christ child. And these kings or representatives of kings, whoever they were, they were wealthy people, were coming and they were kneeling there next to them. I think those kings would have said to the shepherds, what are you doing here? And they would have said, we're kneeling at the, at the manger bed of Christ the king. And they would have said to the kings, what are you doing here? And they would have said, we're kneeling at the manger bed of Christ the king. And they would have both realized in their hearts, hey, we're equals. Now, American society, we love talking about equality. And very often, equality is always trying to gain equality with someone who's higher than us. What I notice is that nobody ever wants to have equality with someone who's lower than them. But when we come to the Christ child, we all lower ourselves. And therefore, we find equality at that point. I want to talk about that for a sec, because I have found, like, clearly in life, that's just not life. Kings don't hang out with people who clean the office. It doesn't work that way. There's a couple times in my life that I've seen that. I've been lucky enough. I've been to uh, Rio de Janeiro for work, and there's two extreme peoples in Rio, extremely rich people and very poor people, but they meet on the beach. Both people are on the beach. You also see that in Catholic churches, because I was an auditor, I've traveled all over the place. Say you go to church in Chicago, in the Loop, St. Peter's in Chicago. It's a huge crucifix, 20 feet long, 20 feet high, right in front of the door. And I've gone to church there before work. And poor people are in there, and titans of business are in there, equal before God. That's what you're explaining, because the world doesn't work like that. But we're going to also be equal when we die, when we stand before God. All our titles, all our money, all our status gets stripped away, and we stand before God equal. Very few places in the world do you find that. You find that in the nativity, and it's a message for people. What do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm humbled by this whenever I'm, I'm celebrating Mass in my own parish because I look out across my people and I know their stories. Here I can see 
uh, a refugee family from El Salvador whose father was killed in the violence there 20 years ago. And they've made it to the U.S. and they're members of my parish. They're working class people. They're immigrants. Over here, I see a Vietnamese family who've also fled their the communism in their land, faithful Catholics, working hard, members of American society, members of our church. And then I see some people who I know are very wealthy executives of international companies who are there with them. And everybody in between, old people, young people, babies, young you know, children, teenagers, all together worshiping the Lord. And you're right. In the Catholic faith, we find this great diversity and great equality because we're all on the same level. We're all kneeling. And Father Long, and I go, just to let you know, I mean, when it comes, I mean, you know, Joe and I do a lot of a lot of the cultural commentary on other, you know, other podcasts and things like that. And uh, and, and yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the, the way we go about it. My view is this. When you start labeling people, you know, like, let's say, for let's call it the political left. When they start labeling people with all these tags, Joe, my attitude is very simple. Uh, excuse me. You want to throw that at somebody else? Go right ahead. OK, I'm Roman Catholic. Last time I checked, my, my church is multicultural because my church is worldwide. My church is not a white Christian European church because it was founded in the Middle East, okay, um, and, and, and blossomed in North Africa and the Middle East and Asia Minor. Uh, we, we don't allow that. I think I want you to your comment on this. That Catholics need to stop letting those who would attack us as Catholics, okay, put us in their nice, neat little boxes in order to attack us because we do, we actually put into practice in our church, not perfectly, okay, but in our church, we put into practice what a lot of people just simply talk about or sloganeer about, okay? We actually put it into practice because we do feed the poor. We don't respect race, okay? We see all people as, well, I'll, I'm, you know where I'm going, Father. I'll throw it over to you. One of the things that brought me into the Catholic Church from first evangelicalism and then the Anglican Church was this, what I call, universal authority of the Catholic Church. And the universal authority of the Catholic Church is such that it's, I, call, I say that it's both chronological and geographical. It's chronological because the authority of the Catholic Church stretches back 2,000 years. When we're considering, considering a hot-button issue, maybe it's same-sex marriage or women's ordination to the priesthood, or maybe it's artificial contraception or abortion or some hot-button issue in society, the Catholic Church says, well, what have we thought about this for the last 2,000 years? What have we um, taught about this over the last 2,000 years? So it has a, a, what I call a chronological authority. It has authority which is not just saying, what do the polls from yesterday say? What do the newspaper headlines from yesterday say? We have to make up our mind on that. No, we decide on this chronological authority, which goes back to not just 2,000 years, but then even further back into Jewish society and the Jewish religion uh, and, and the religions of the classical antiquity. Our roots are way back thousands of years, and we draw from that wisdom of 2,000 years to be able to make these decisions. We also have a geographical um, authority, meaning that just like you said, we consider how is this decision going to impact our brothers and sisters in Africa or in India or in Korea or in Japan or in Brazil or in El Salvador. We consider a universal geographical authority weighing up not just what Western Europeans think or what, like you said, what white men in America, on the East Coast of America think, but what do people think, men and women, old people and young people think, and how is it going to affect them all over the world? And to me, that is a huge plus for the Catholic Church and a huge plus for our authority and a huge plus for whatever we stand for in the world, that we're actually saying, look, 
We are representing a global community here of men and women, boys and girls, smart and stupid, rich and poor, all from all over the world. We consider everybody. Um, and that is that gives me a great boost in my own ministry as a priest and my own faith as a Catholic. Father, I'm, I'm going to hand it over to Joe. I will tell you this. I've gotten into some bad arguments, okay, uh, where I didn't mean to be an ang I wasn't trying to anger somebody, but I made a statement, and I said, you want to know something? If everybody not only adopted the world of the Catholic faith, of the Catholic Church, and but also practically applied it in their lives and in the way they view society, these problems wouldn't exist in the world. We'd always have problems because we're fallen creatures, okay? But these problems would not exist. You want to see somebody's vein pop out of their head, all right? Because what I think what I just said is true, okay? Um, I think you could demonstrate that, all right? Where the Catholic Church is strong, we, we have a more just society. A lot of the things that people argue about, they're, they're, I think they're, they're, they take some ideas from the church and Christian morality and try to apply it in a way without God or without the church. And I think that's where we run into problems on a societal level is that you can't detach God from doing the good and pursuing the good, the true, and the beautiful. Yeah. I'd love a comment on that, Father. People, whether they know it or not, are doing a approaching the Catholic Church with a cafeteria mentality. I like this about the Catholic Church. I like that about Catholic teaching. I like this about Catholic teaching. I don't like that other stuff. I'm going to take a little bit of it and try to apply it if I can, but that's but that will never work. You have to take the entirety of the entire the Catholic Church's teachings, devotions, and practice to be able to understand them all. If you just take it a little bit at a time, you're not going to understand it. Com use an analogy of America instead of the Catholic Church. What if a foreigner came to America and said, well, you know, I really like cowboy hats. So everybody has to wear cowboy hats because cowboy hats are really cool. Or I really like Disney films. That's a really American thing that's really wonderful. Let's everybody just watch Disney films all the time. No, that would be totally stupid because Disney films or cowboy hats or <clears throat> Harley Davidson motorcycles or Corvette cars or whatever are little bits of America. You have to take all of America in all of its history to understand America. So to, that's just an analogy of what I'm talking about. It's the same with the Catholic faith. If you understand and accept all of it, it will make sense and you can apply it. But if you just pick and, pick and choose little bits of it, it's a waste of time. Well, that's one of the things I'm going to hand it over to Joe, but that's one of the things I think is um, that what we hammer it all the time uh, on the show is that a lot of this has to do with, and, and I think you were going there a little bit, is that, yeah, I love I, I, you know all that stuff about the poor, Feeding the poor, yeah, we'll take that. All that sexual stuff, ah, eh, you guys could keep that. I'll, I'll, you know, so yeah, it's always trying to, you know, take out what you want and leaving what you don't. Well, guess what? You, like you said, Father, and I'm glad you mentioned that. You'd understand why the church teaches what it does on contraception, why the church teaches what it does on homosexuality, if you would go out of your way to maybe do a little reading. Okay, and I, if that sounds judgmental, I apologize. But maybe, or watch, or go out and buy Father Longenecker's books and read his articles, and others out there who are, who are writing and trying to expand our consciousness, raise our consciousness as to why the church believes what it believes. Father Dwight Longenecker is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. Please go out and buy his book, The Secret of the Bethlehem Shepherds. That's available at Sophia Press and at DwightLongenecker.com. Joe, we have a few minutes. Where do you want to go with Father Dwight? I want to talk about the simplicity of the shepherds. Um, again, I'm not a historian, but if I was willing to bet, they probably couldn't read. That's probably a guess. I've encountered that in my life two times on a flight into Haiti 
and a flight into India. The person sitting next to me could not fill out the customs form because they couldn't read. And they asked me to help them. But if I was willing to bet that these folks couldn't read, why do I bring that up? Because they were simple and they found Jesus. And I reflect on that and I say to myself, isn't it just simple to this day? We make it so complicated. It's so simple. Jesus was a blue collar guy. The 12 guys that followed him were blue collar guys. And it's just that simple. And we make it complex. And this is something that I've been trying to do. I try to tune out a lot of the madness that's going on in the church. And I stick to first principles, the basics. I try to go to church every day and receive. I go to confession every month. I pray the rosary. I go to adoration. I read the scripture every day. I fast the simple things because it's the simple way. Talk about that. It's just simple, Father. The illiterate shepherds found them, yet all these PhDs on Twitter are arguing about craziness, and they're crazy in plain English. I just think it's a simple deal, and you can find God, and you can be happy and have peace, but we don't. We, we get nuts. Please, elaborate this is, on it. This is, this is one of the other genius things about the Catholic faith, which I've, I've um, emphasized in my writing, saying that that authority I was talking about is also emphasized by the fact that the Catholic Church appeals to um, the working class, like you say, the blue-collar guys and the white-collar guys and everybody in between. It appeals to the kings and the shepherds. It appeals to um, the ignorant and the educated. And if you take something as simple as the Holy Rosary, for instance, what I love about the Holy Rosary is that it's actually a very um, in-depth, psychological, spiritual tool for meditation and uh, getting close to God. But it's also something which can be books have written about it by theologians uh, and devotional writers. I've written a couple of books about it. Um, it can be approached and understood and discussed by intellectuals and theologians. But your very ordinary Catholic in the pew can pick up their rosary beads and pray the rosary and draw close to God and may actually be possibly praying the rosary at a deeper level than all those smart people all those you know, edu well-educated people, and it appeals to both. The same thing applies, um, I, I, when I was coming into the Catholic Church, I can remember going to um, the shrine of St. Therese in Lisieux in France, and <clears throat> I was a bit of a snob, and I was put off by all of the souvenir shops on the way up to the Basilica with, you know, lots, you've all seen these, you know, with um, tacky postcards and those little uh, snow snowstorm domes with the saint in the, inside it, and you know those pictures of Mary and Jesus with googly eyes, which kind of trans change from one to the other. All that tacky Catholic stuff, and I was like, "Yuck!" You know, I don't want to be a Catholic. Look at all that tacky Catholic junk. Um, and when I was coming back from the Basilica, the Lord spoke to me and said, "Look, this is maybe not to your taste, but maybe it's an ordinary taste for very ordinary people who like that stuff. Why are you such a snob?" You know, not everything has to be the Sistine Chapel and Michelangelo all the time, but realize that the Catholic faith does have the Sistine Chapel and Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci and all that high stuff and all the greatest churches in the world. But it also has this simple stuff for simple people. It's both and it's not either or. Father Dwight Long and I, we probably have a couple minutes left, but you, you, you triggered a thought is that I, I kind of. I think I do take a shepherd's view now that after having this conversations with you about the Eucharist. The shepherds go, 
They see Jesus. They recognize him as the king. And again, with all I've read about the Eucharist, I've, uh, I've, Bishop Barron's book that came out a few years ago, I remember reading that. It's a great book on the Eucharist, a number of things. And that's all great. But at one point, especially when it comes to the Eucharist, which is the source, summit, and center of the church's life, okay, do we have to just, as the shepherds say, yeah, I got all that other stuff, I get it, but at the end of the day, what am I looking at? And the need to say, you mentioned Christ the King, Corpus Christi, all right? Or excuse me, not Corpus Christi, Christ the King. That's Jesus. That's Jesus in the Eucharist, and I need to start acknowledging that, okay, and living living the way he wants me to live. Um, talk about the need for sometimes simple acceptance. And then uh, we have about a minute left. I would have hoped that maybe the shepherds in their years of reflection after they were living in Bethlehem and maybe 30 years later, they understood who this Messiah was, who this Jesus who appeared on the scene and was baptized by John the Baptist, uh, and that they would have heard his message and they would have come to believe in him, that um, eventually they would have met, they and their descendants would have meditated on the fact that this Jesus was discovered in the manger, which was the feeding trough of the animals. And remember the word manger in French actually means to eat that they would have seen the manger as the feeding trough for the animals, and they would have realized that this baby laying in the manger was actually the bread of heaven. And he was born in Bethlehem, and the word Bethlehem means house of bread in Hebrew. And coincidentally, in Arabic and Aramaic, it means house of flesh. So Jesus, the bread of life, was laid in the manger, a feeding trough, and he was born in the city, which is the house of bread and also the house of flesh. And the bread becomes the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you so much for that comment. Real quick, Father, what do you got going on? Any new books in the pipeline where our audience uh, could find you, social media and all that fun stuff? Yeah. Last year, I actually had three books published by just by the way of the timing of when books are written and when they're published and when they come out. And the last book that was published last year was my autobiography, which is called There and Back Again, a somewhat religious odyssey. So we need to come back on and talk about that in the future. But that's also yes. just published over the summer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Father Dwight, you know, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Joe and I say all the time, and it's so true. We learn as much as our audience does. So thank you so much. Please Keep writing, and please keep coming on the front line with Joe and Joe. Thank you again, Father. Thank you. God bless you. God bless you, and thank you all out there for joining us at the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York City metropolitan area. Download the app, share it with your friends, wherever you see Joe and I on social media. Please like, subscribe, share, do all that fun stuff, and remember until the next time that our conversation is your conversation, and that conversation is going on everywhere. We'll talk to you soon.